Hey, it's your girl, 99. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Crin G., Cindy S., and Corey S., unfucking insane level members of the show. To learn more about how you can support Unfucking the Republic, check out our website at unftr.com or go to buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. We want to recognize and express our gratitude to the following plant fuckers who sent in notes and suggestions specifically in anticipation of this show. Thank you to Allison D., Tyler M., Kyle C., Rhonda K., Carla H., Atomic Dog, Charlie S., Seamus, Andrew L., Lindsay F., Jules LL, Paul C., and John D. This episode has been in the works for a while. Unfuckers weighed in as to how our vegan audience members would like to be referred to, and as you know, I prevailed with the name Plant Fuckers over Max's rather inelegant Uncluckers. This episode is personal for me, because I've been a vegan slash vegetarian since 2008. I grew up in a family that ate meat, and never really questioned its origin. And I can't remember why or what exactly sparked me, but one day I just thought, I, I love animals. Why am I eating them? I went vegetarian very quickly after. I was barely a teenager, so I needed parental buy-in and their support, financially for food and emotionally in my decision. But access is a big part of the equation. In college, there was little access to vegan food, for example. But I've been consistent with it for a good number of years now, and I've never once regretted my decision. My personal belief is that animals deserve to live their lives in peace with love. That's why I went vegan. But veganism is deeply personal. Everyone has their own valid story and rationale for living their version of a plant-based life. As I said, my reasoning started emotionally, and that remains a core tenet of my beliefs. But for me, it's also part of intersectionality, equality, justice, and doing right by the planet. Beyond my personal take on veganism, this episode charts a very different path. The subject of food is obviously massive, with more than 40% of the world's population employed in some fashion by the food and agriculture industry. We decided to approach the subject of food with the same scrutiny and research as any other topic we tackle, so don't expect any nutrition and diet advice, thoughts on the treatment of animals, or other moral and ethical challenges related to our food supply. But rest assured, these issues are part of the underlying subtext of the show and cannot be delinked from the primary objective, which is to talk about the salvation of our planet and our species. In other words, just a regular old Saturday on fucking with your favorite trio of unfuckers. So without further ado, we present A Mostly Vegan World. Plant fuckers can save us all. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. It's just what the world needs. He started a podcast. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. For most of history, food was a very personal and individual part of life. Subsistence was a daily struggle. Hunting, gathering, and eventually farming of crops and livestock would consume every waking thought of humanity. Depending upon the resources available in a particular part of the world, society revolved around the planning, cultivation, storage, distribution, and consumption of food. Fishing, farming, hunting, our relationship to food was intimate. For centuries, the world's population grew slowly. During the Black Plague in the 1600s, population actually stagnated after so many people perished. Through the Enlightenment to the pre-industrial period, 
The population on Earth surged as agricultural techniques were shared among cultures, and we developed new farming methods during what is known as the Agricultural Revolution. Agriculture still informed every aspect of life, from economics and trade to daily existence. The Industrial Revolution brought about innovation on a scale never before seen in the world. In a matter of a few decades, there would be a great urban migration as the population continued its upward surge. But while this presented new economic possibilities, it also brought us further away from the production and manufacturing of food. Food would now need to be generated and transported at scale to feed the growing urban populations. Two world wars would curb the European population, but the rest of the world continued its unmitigated surge, and then we would follow suit in the post-war baby boom. The wars would also transform the production of food from natural to industrial. Higher birth rates, longer lifespans, global trade agreements, technological innovations to increase yields of crops, livestock, and fishing guaranteed abundance, and the world's population exploded from two and a half billion in 1950 to nearly eight billion today. That is a lot of fucking. So much fucking indeed. So much so, in fact, that we're fucked. Chapter 1. Framing the Issue We now have to decarbonize the whole food system within 30 years. Secondly, we have to stop expanding agriculture into natural ecosystem. We need to feed humanity and recognize we've come to the end of the road of just expanding land. Can you imagine? We've translated 50% of the whole land area on the planet into agriculture. Half of the planet's Earth's surface is under agriculture. We must halt loss of biodiversity. We must radically improve productivity of water so that we reduce pressures, and we need to start cycling nitrogen and phosphorus and reduce eutrophication. That's Professor Johan Rockström of the Stockholm Resilience Center at the Eat Lancet Lecture at the University of Oslo in 2019. There's a lot packed into this statement that helps us frame the issue of food in today's world. But before going further, I want to state what this episode is not. This isn't an episode on morality, as 99 said up top. At least not on an individual level. It's not about animal rights and abuse, dietary health, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. It's not about rights either. The right to hunt or the right to clean food and nourishment. This is a story of survival. Yours, mine, our entire species. It's an episode absent of judgment and blaming no one because it's the only way I can approach something that quite literally impacts every human being on Earth. To take the emotion out of this, we all eat. It's as essential as breathing. It's more than a right, it's a requirement. But I do recognize that many of the plant fuckers who have written into us approach the subject of food in much the same way as 99. It's emotional, it's moral, it's ethical. And if these are your motivations for living a vegan lifestyle or perhaps a vegetarian, pescatarian, or even a kangatarian, or other form of sustenance, you are more than validated and seriously ahead of the game. And as we'll discover together today, you're probably doing more to save our species than almost everyone else that you know. But for most people, being vegan is somewhat unattainable, either by economic or geographic circumstances, or by ignorance. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. As much as there's a great deal of information available on the benefits of a plant-based diet for people and the planet, the propagandic forces of industry are overwhelming. You want to go bigger and stronger, don't you? Golly, sure. Okay. 
A sandwich daily and two slices of Wonder Bread every meal give you eight elements you need. Because most of us are so far removed from the food cultivation and harvesting process, and society is organized around the industrial food supply chain, one is forced to actively pursue a plant-based lifestyle because the dead food lifestyle is cheaper, faster, and passively available in abundance. I'm sure many of you watched Don't Look Up over the holiday break. It's a film about the dangers of ignoring science and allowing corporations to drive life and death decisions through the lens of invention and profit. It's a fun yet pretty blunt piece of art that uses our response to an extinction event as an allegory for ignoring climate science. It's great timing to frame our episode today because apart from the moral and ethical implications of the industrial food supply chain, there is a very real science behind the seismic role that industrial agriculture plays in the destruction of human and planetary health. The good news is that governments and NGOs are entirely awake and understand the implications of this science. The bad news is they have almost universally ceded the authority and ability to do anything about it to mega corporations that are, as we'll cover later, painfully and purposefully behind the eight ball. So we're setting the table, so to speak, to open our minds to what's at stake. So for lunch, I would love a 20-ounce porterhouse steak. Not that kind of steak. What's at stake for the world so we can listen clearly to the experts, the economic opportunities, and the calamitous prospects of doing nothing? Science is amazing. It's why we think it can save us all. American ingenuity and all of that crap. We first have to acknowledge the areas of truth within this sentiment while acknowledging the dangers of believing that it will all be okay because someone else will figure it out. The industrialization of food and agriculture has enabled the population to grow to the staggering 8 billion figure that is projected to increase to 10 billion by 2050. This is indisputable. Life expectancies doubled, and in some cases tripled over the past 150 years. These are remarkable achievements in human evolution, and it's why it's so difficult for some to understand the downside of industrialization. Population growth and increased life expectancy are tangible and real. So if you had a time machine and traveled back two or 300 years to deliver this little piece of news, you would be met with astonishment. In fact, it was believed by many, even during the agricultural revolution itself, that the Earth was already at maximum capacity and incapable of carrying any more of us. This idea is known as Malthusian theory, a concept attributed to a man named Thomas Malthus and was stubbornly resilient for a time despite clear evidence to the contrary. And because we just introduced an enlightenment thinker in theory, you know what that means, unfuckers. I think I may fairly make two postulata. First, that food is necessary to the existence of man. Second, that the passion between the sexes is necessary and will remain nearly in its present state. Thomas Malthus. This was the opening salvo of Malthus's paper titled On the Principle of Population, originally published anonymously in 1798. Malthus would continue to refine his paper and eventually take credit for it, propelled by the outsized response to his theory. Essentially, he theorized that human reproductive capacity was geometric in nature. Basically, we can spit out lots of babies and we'll do so because we love to fuck. 
But the planet was only capable of producing food arithmetically, because there's only one planet. He believed that humans would always fuck and make too many humans, and eventually outpace the planet's ability to feed them, thus entering what he called the, quote, cycle of misery. So in Malthus's view, every few generations we would fuck too much, make too many humans, and then they would starve and die, causing the cycle to repeat over and over again. This type of economic modeling, which is more sociological than economic, is referred to as Malthusian. So Malthus was a contemporary and a friend of great thinkers such as Ricardo and Hume. He might have been entirely too pessimistic and no fun to be around, but his essay had a profound effect on economic thinking of the times. Even though the evidence was all around him that the population was in fact increasing and our ability to feed people was expanding. While he did allow for growth attributed to the so-called New World, like many philosophers of the time, he had a pretty big blind spot when it came to a place called Asia. Malthus would soon be used as an example of economic thinking gone wrong, much in the way that Hubbard would one day predict the era of peak oil in the 1970s. He simply didn't factor in advances in production that increased yields and the opening of global trade routes. But I'm willing to give Malthus a little slack here because, as we'll discover, while he might have been entirely wrong about our capacity to increase production to meet demand, there's strong support for his concept of the cycle of misery that we're heading into. Chapter 2. How did we get here? In the pursuit of ending world hunger, whether the motivations were noble or driven by profit, the result is a spiral into madness. Now, we've covered the earth in chemicals and pesticides and burned the nutrients out of the soil, created a system where overfishing threatens marine population and runoff pollution in the waterways and oceans has contributed to a die-off of coral reefs required for breeding and cleaning the water, a system that requires more and more land to satiate our desire for meat, resulting in deforestation that simultaneously releases excess carbon into the atmosphere and diminishes our ability to capture it. And we've bred livestock so plentiful that they might belch us into extinction. This is the paradox of mass production. Industrial agriculture reduced the, quote, number of undernourished people from approximately 35% of the population in developing countries in 1970 to 13% in 2015, end quote. And that was according to published accounts by Roser and Ritchie in 2020. But over the same period, the number of people with micronutrient deficiencies and those who experience obesity have increased dramatically. So the trade-off was less starvation, more health issues. Experts refer to this phenomenon as hidden hunger. In The Economics of Sustainable Food by Nicoletta Bettini, the author builds a case for a new way of thinking that pulls together economic and political policies in what she calls a, quote, portfolio of policy measures that can inform governments and NGOs around the world. Recognizing that beta programs in countries like Denmark and Bhutan and the Netherlands can be instructive, but the world needs a comprehensive plan to manage the intricacies of the food cultivation and distribution infrastructure. Here's Bettini, whom I will pull a lot from today. Agriculture is estimated to be responsible for 21 to 37% of all greenhouse gas emissions because of the release of carbon dioxide from deforestation to claw back land for pasture and feedstock crops and from burning fossil fuels to power farm machinery and to transport, store, and cook foods. The release of methane from ruminant livestock and the release of nitrous oxide from industrially tilled, heavily fertilized soils and liquid manure management systems. And these circumstances don't only apply to the land, as Bettini notes. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and hence in the ocean's surface waters, has increased by almost 30 percent, 
In response, those surface waters have become steadily more acidic, and structures made of calcium carbonate, such as shellfish and coral reefs, have begun to dissolve, gradually disrupting the functioning of the marine food supply chain. In our scientific pursuit of maximizing food production, we have abused the land and oceans. Normal agriculture practices ensure regeneration of both soil and marine life, but the combination of overproduction and chemical applications have put us in a perilous situation, one that was exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, which laid bare the fragility of the global food supply chain. So much so that the United Nations estimated that up to 811 million people in the world faced hunger in 2020, a 20% increase in just one year. My baloney has a first name, it's O-S-C-A-R. My baloney has a second name, it's M-A-Y-E-R. The United Nations also estimates that food systems have contributed to up to 80% of biodiversity loss and up to 70% of freshwater loss, desperately needed for irrigation and, of course, drinking. So along with NGOs and government agencies across the world, they've put together a five-part goal to Nourish all people Boost nature-based solutions Advance equitable livelihoods, decent work, and empowered communities Build resilience to vulnerabilities, shocks, and stresses, and accelerating the means of implementation. And purchase organic, fair trade, shade-grown, bird-friendly, native roasted coffee at unftr.com. That is not a pillar of the UN Food Systems Plan. It's a pillar of the UNFTR food system. Shit. Me and Mrs. Faces and Baby Girl Faces gotta fucking eat, you know what I mean? Uh, if you two are quite finished. The UN Food Systems Plan is a lovely little outline of a plan to coordinate thousands of suggestions that must be individually interpreted and collectively implemented at scale to produce a positive outcome for people and planet in accordance with best practices and sustainability initiatives as detailed by stakeholder nations and NGOs. And it even ends with a lovely little quote from Martin Luther King Jr. and a determined next step to have a, quote, two-year stock take where the Secretary General checks back in with the committees and subcommittees to see what progress has been made in outlining organizing principles. In other words, it's every country for itself. We're fucked. Chapter 3. More Industrial Than Agricultural Like so many of our episodes, this is a story of corporate avarice and the government's inability to rein it in. Most are familiar with one of the great agro-villains of the modern era, Monsanto. Monsanto is now part of Bayer after completing a massive buyout for more than $60 billion. The deal was even attractive enough to Bayer to look past the multitude of lawsuits against Monsanto from farmers and stakeholders all over the world, estimated to be somewhere around $10 billion in payouts and settlements. So imagine being so big and profitable as to withstand that type of expense? Good Lord. To understand the magnitude of the problem, 
is to know just how big and far-reaching their impact has been over the past few decades. Of course, that's not how they see things. At Bayer, we're shaping the future of agriculture. Farms where all life grows together. Tools that help plants and farmers use less water. Crops that can help raise communities out of poverty. It's not impossible, it's progress. Monsanto, and I'll keep referring to it as such, has always been a pretty shitty company, responsible for chart-topping hits like DDT and Napalm. The company that started off producing saccharin in the first part of the 20th century went on to become one of the largest and meanest agribusinesses in the world. And today, Monsanto's genetically modified seeds cover 80% of farmland worldwide. It's most known for producing Roundup, an herbicide that preserves the plants that come from their seeds while killing the weeds around them. But it's also been linked to cancer, kill off of bees, and it's believed to be an endocrine disruptor. <gasps> According to DNB, Monsanto still employs more than 20,000 people globally. And here's the thing. I'm sure that there are those at the company that don't feel right about what they do. But I'm willing to bet that most feel as though they're doing really good in the world. This is where we have to understand the powerful force of both propaganda and the actual results. See, crop yields from Monsanto seeds are enormous. And because they've closed the loop on the growing system by supplying the seeds, the fertilizer, the herbicides, and the pesticides, it's hard to argue against because they've effectively eliminated any basis of comparison. We'll get to that a little bit later because we do have some good evidence that there's a shift and a trend that's really positive. But for right now, Monsanto rules the day. And they're a special kind of evil, but they're not alone in their fuckery. On the manufacturing end of things, you have companies like John Deere. And in his book, Animal Vegetable Junk by Mark Bittman, the author provides a complete historical account of food, dissects the issues that plague the modern farm, and warns of the evils of the junk food industry. But in speaking of Deere, Bittman says, financing tied farmers to equipment, chemical and seed producers, and bankers as well. And while Deere and company showed goodwill towards struggling farmers, its success in financially bonding these farmers virtually ensured that creditors remained profitable in the long term. It's also among the chief reasons why industrial agriculture is so difficult to change today. Today, the company's margins are almost four times as great from providing credit than they are from sales, end quote. But wait, there's more. Bittman goes on to highlight several other bad actors, such as the United Fruit Company, which literally worked hand-in-hand -hand with the CIA during the 50s to overthrow the government of Guatemala. Quote, United Fruit operated with more than impunity. It had the protection of the U.S. government, and in particular the CIA, which enforced the company's colonial power by funding agitators, performing elaborate cover-ups, stoking civil wars in El Salvador, Colombia, and Honduras, among others, and even engineering entire regime changes, end quote. United Fruit was so successful cornering the market on bananas and taking land by force that bananas are now the fourth largest crop in the world. So we've got demon seeds, evil bankers, and literal coup d'etats. Sweet. Most refer to the growth of big agro as the, quote, Green Revolution, a phrase coined by William Goud in 1968 in the capacity of Director for International Development in the United States. He said, these and other developments in the field of agriculture contain the makings of a new revolution. It's not a violent red revolution like that of the Soviets, nor is it a white revolution like that of the Shah in Iran. I call it the green revolution. But like any Greek tragedy, 
This is the beginning, the rise before the decline. Scratch below the surface, and we're just now beginning to understand how ugly and devastating the Green Revolution has actually been. Let me say a few words about McDonald's Big Mac. It's a, it's, it's two whole beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Two whole... Well, what, what was that word again? Two whole beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. According to Bettini's research, Historically, humans used more than 70,000 plant species for food. With modern mechanized farming, only 150 species are now under cultivation, and only three, wheat, rice, and maize, provide nearly 60% of all calories that humans consume from plants." End quote. Now, there are a number of problems with this development as corporations have spread and consolidated land, machinery, supply chains, and distribution. And the first is that our diets are really fucked up. We're missing so many of the core nutrients our bodies need, which results in obesity and malnutrition, that appears to look like people are fed when they're actually undernourished with empty caloric intake that provides little value to the human body. In terms of the planet, our emphasis on monoculture has led to extreme overuse of both freshwater and soil, both of which need to regenerate. This goes for the oceans as well, as both land and sea have been polluted by the industrial chemical applications required to maintain these massive monocultures that is beginning to affect yields and quantity. And both land and sea have been so polluted by the industrial chemical applications required to maintain these massive monocultures that it's beginning to, finally, affect yields and quality. So microbes and insects necessary for healthy soil are dying on land and critical breeding systems are rotting in the ocean. So the Green Revolution might have worked on the surface for several decades, but we're now beginning to pay the price for it. Perhaps the most dangerous aspect of the revolution is clearing of land to make way for crops to feed livestock. And the more people we welcome into the world, the more land is required to increase the cycle of madness. As Bittman notes, quote, the truth is that the green revolution was never about feeding the world. That was and remains the public relations spin. Rather, it was a front for selling American agricultural machinery, chemicals, and seeds, sales that were aimed mostly at farmers or investors who had the substantial capital needed for land and equipment, end quote. And it wasn't all economically as sound as it seems. In fact, most of these major industrial farming and fishing operations have only survived as a result of government subsidies and artificial price supports. Again, Bittman, quote, in the Philippines, price supports for rice increased by 50%. In Mexico, the government purchased domestically grown wheat at 33% above world market prices. India and Pakistan paid 100% more for their wheat. British scientist Gordon Conway elaborates, by the mid-1980s, the subsidies were 68% of the world price for pesticides, 40% for fertilizers, and nearly 90% for water, end quote. And the one piece of evidence that the so-called Green Revolution might have been more about corporate and government interventions and controls than science is China. China continues to skew the numbers globally because of the sheer size of its population. China followed no such intervention. Rather, they pursued land reform that offered tracts to peasants, investments in irrigation, and direct payments to actual farmers rather than corporate behemoths. The result was an increase in yields and fewer hungry people, as the government in China recognized that the forced urban migration they were undertaking as part of their long-term economic plan would require food outputs to increase in order to feed hungry city dwellers. And so as Bittman concludes, quote, if you exclude China, the number of hungry people in the world actually increased during the heyday of the Green Revolution 
despite increases in yield. Whew. Okay, so we've covered a lot. Why don't we take a quick break to catch up with some old friends? Senator Manchin, I presume. How did you know it was me? I could smell the coal on you. Dr. Cheney, I know I'm pushing my luck here, but I need your advice. You successfully killed the Build Back Better bill and have turned the tide against the Democrats and stalled their agenda, all but ensuring a blowout come midterms. But the filibuster vote looms above your head, and you're wondering just how far you can push this before they discover you're nothing more than a Republican in a blue tie. You see a lot, Dr. Cheney. Quid pro quo, cold sucker. Tell me of AOC. How does she smell? Delicious, I presume. I really don't... I just... I haven't gotten that close to her. Uh, sir, can we talk about the filibuster, please? You come from a long line of racist Southern congresspeople, from Calhoun to Russell, and are therefore sworn to uphold the filibuster at all costs, or risk the Democrats issuing a wave of reforms that will better the lives of millions and protect their rights to participate in the democratic process. You kill the filibuster reform, saying you're too scared to hand back power to Mitch McConnell. You called, sir? Go back to sleep, my dear turtle. I'll have you for dinner later. Oh, you mean have me over for dinner, right? But if I keep going down this path, won't I just put myself in the minority? Not if you switch parties. Must I explain everything to you? Meanwhile, in the over office. Choo-choo! All aboard! Come on, Kamala. Come play with my new train set. Not now, Jabiden. Mamala has a lot on her mind. Get me Pisaki in here right up. Yes, ma'am. Fuck me, I'll never get used to that. Pisaki, what are you working on? Feeding questions to the CNN White House correspondents. What's up, boss? COVID is a hoax, y'all. The vaccine is made for baby blood and Lucifer's hair. What the hell is that? January 6th should be a national holiday called Patriot's Day. That's Marjorie Taylor Greene, ma'am. She was deplatformed, so now she's taken to live screaming her tweets from the White House lawn. Hmm. Tell you what. Tell the Secret Service it's Elon Omar yelling Alua Akbar. Where the hell did she... All set, ma'am. Jesus, Pisaki, did they just shoot a ma- Hmm, never mind. Order a special election in her district and take the flag to half-mast. In the meantime, get me Schumer on the phone. We need to talk about the filibuster. Hey, I know a filibuster. Old William Walker. I am William Wallace. Holy smokes, Mel Gibson. Not that filibuster, Joe. Mel Gibson, how did you get clearance? I shook a tits. I came here to ask you to bomb Israel. Pisaki, took care of that one myself. Schumer, coming up. Meanwhile, at Schumer's pad. Oh, 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 give it to me, Chuckles. Yes, right there. Nancy, shut the ringer on my phone. It's probably the president. Sure thing. Now get over here, big boy. Oh, yeah. Oh. He's not picking up, ma'am. Uh, dude, did you just fucking shoot Mel Gibson? Hey, Hunter, how you doing, sport? Uh, I'm not Hunter, you dickweed. <laughs> Pisaki, that's enough. Sorry, ma'am. UNFTR! If during that skit you both cackled with laughter and threw up in your mouth a little bit, 
You're not alone. Anyway, let's get back to finding out how plant fuckers can save us all. Chapter 4. Waste Not, Want Not Then there's waste. Bittman estimates that the world wasted 1.6 billion tons of food in 2015, nearly one-third of what it produced. Talk about market inefficiencies. So beyond the horrific notion that people still go hungry and a third of food production is wasted, there are planetary and climate consequences to such irresponsible corporate behavior. The number of livestock, cattle, poultry, sheep, etc., is now three times greater than the human population. The amount of waste generated by livestock and other processed animal food is twice that of the waste produced by humans annually. But that's not the only type of waste that is problematic. Methane emissions from livestock are incredibly potent and have gotten out of control. Now, this is an important one to understand because most people do call bullshit on cow belching killing the planet, but it's a very real problem. Here's how it works, according to Bittman. Quote, Although methane, which is the most emitted gas by cattle and is released through belching, does not linger as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, it is initially far more devastating to the climate because of how effectively it absorbs heat. In the first two decades after it's released, methane is 84 times more potent than carbon dioxide. If we eliminated all methane and nitrous oxide emissions from livestock today, we would dramatically increase our chances to stabilize to the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in temperature by 2050 as recommended by the IPCC because these GHGs have much stronger heat trapping potential over shorter horizons than carbon dioxide." End quote. All told, the agri-food industry makes up somewhere in the range of 35 to 40 percent of what is called the net anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. So if we're going to hit the IPCC targets, this is the area that we must focus our attention. Livestock alone count for as many GHG as all of the emissions from the entire transportation industry. Cars, planes, trains, you name it. Unfortunately, and as usual, while the scientific community, NGOs, the UN, and most governments of the world recognize the problems and know what must be done, corporations have control. And they're doing very, very little about it, no matter how many sustainability reports and ESG filings they make to try and attract investors. If you go to Bayer's Monsanto website, it's stunning how much of their corporate information is dedicated to promoting these initiatives. But according to something called the Collar Fair Protein Index, a collaborative investor network dedicated to raising awareness of ESG risks from livestock, i.e. protein production, the global value of the protein market is around $1.6 Now, that's a lot of money, but it still only represents about 2% of the global GDP. This is good and bad news, and here's why. When we think about restructuring and redefining interconnected global markets, it can seem pretty daunting. We're talking about reforming a $1.6 trillion industry, and that's just protein from livestock. But then again, it's only 2% of GDP, so anything is possible. But it will take massive coordination and heavy-handed regulatory intervention from all governments because, as the FAIR Index points out, quote, in 2020, of the 34 facilities assessed by FAIR, discharges of nitrogen and phosphorus were consistently in excess of 500% over the maximum allowable limit, with outlier events from Tyson, which resulted in nitrogen discharge that was more than 8,000% in excess, and phosphorus discharges of more than 12,000 in excess. I mean, Tyson is just the fucking worst on every level. Anyway, 
What's interesting about FAIR's approach is that they consider the whole picture both upstream and downstream. For example, they track the issues related to the production of soy, which is the second largest driver of tropical deforestation after beef, and 70 to 75% of all soy becomes livestock feed. So you can begin to see how these closed systems require more and more land consumption and deforestation. Now, despite the known problems with this system, according to FAIR, only one European meat company provides full traceability of soy sources, and only two Asian companies provide similar tracing. So the bottom line is that the FAIR index illustrates both the magnitude of the problem and the unwillingness of corporations to do anything about it or even be transparent. And one final note on waste. You know that island in the Pacific made up entirely of plastic? Turns out that today, it's already the size of France and growing exponentially, with the United States being the largest contributor, of course. It's related, not entirely relevant to our story today, except that it's also estimated that one-fifth of this garbage island is composed of debris from the earthquake and tsunami in Japan a few years ago. So think about that. Those back-to-back -back events not only ruined 5% of Japanese farmland when it flooded it with salt water, but it released that much garbage into the ocean. So the link here is that more of that is in store for us if we fail to reach this IPCC target. Chapter 5. Plant Fuckers Unite! Every story has an inflection point where things went off the rails. For us, it was in 1840 when a German scientist named Hussus von Liebig declared that nitrogen was what made manure perfect for growing crops. So this led corporations and governments to mindlessly pursue nitrogen to the exclusion of all other nutrient formulations. The only problem was that it was really hard to find in pure form back then. And then one day, European travelers discovered a Latin American secret, a little something called guano. It's made from guano. Guano! That sounds so familiar. Bat droppings. Guano was so powerful and rich that it was like a miracle drug for the soil. And in typical white European fashion, they began raiding these countries of literal batshit and using it to build bigger and higher yielding farms. And as Bittman remarks, quote, according to reductionist analysis, soil and plants quite simply need nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, end quote but they don't consider the hundreds of elements and compounds and trillions of microbes. So some feel that if this nitrogen-packed solution wasn't discovered, that Europe and America might have pursued alternative farming methods with more nuance and diversity instead of driving toward the huge monoculture giant yield mentality that pervades today. We'll never know, but this we do know. The New World had a secret weapon called the Heartland that was flat, gathered tons of rain, and was extremely fertile, just what a young country needed to build a massive system of food production to feed a growing population moving to cities and expanding from coast to coast. And it all led to where we are today, which is, if I may, a little batshit. But like we said earlier, changing our dietary habits as a species isn't exactly easy. It takes education, access, and understanding of what our bodies need. We know what the planet needs, and that's for us to change what and how we eat. If we're going to escape, we'll need energy. I'm vegan. Food scientists at the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and countless organizations are aligning behind something called the One Health Initiative, designed to change our thinking and our policies towards food to reduce antibiotic resistance, 
prevent global zoonotic pandemics from diseases that jump from animals to humans, sound familiar, hold the line on the IPCC 1.5 degree limit, and beat back obesity and micronutrient deficiencies. Collectively, they're advocating for a global dietary transformation that doubles our consumption of plant-based food and reduces our intake of less healthy foods like meat, dairy, and processed foods with added sugars by more than 50%. So completely flipping the script and changing our intake. That's bold, but the idea is spot on. If we as eaters, consumers of this food product, don't demand change and have affordable access to the right types of food, then corporations, especially within a global capital market system, have no incentive to alter their behavior. They'll simply ride this thing into the ground while extracting every last penny that they can along the way. So on an individual level, what does this mean? There are a ton of resources out there, obviously, that can help guide people on how to begin converting their diets, and really a lot of positive news on the horizon from cultured meat grown in labs, vertical irrigation systems that can produce agriculture yields beyond traditional hydroponics with less water use, and organic farming innovations that are more environmentally friendly, profitable for farmers, and regenerative in nature. But there's the question of supply and education, getting people to understand what's out there and making it available and affordable to consumers. And there are several types of diets that would be more beneficial to our bodies from semi-vegetarian or flexitarian, pescatarian, lacto-avo-vegetarian, vegan and whole food plant-based diets. According to Penn State University, here are some basic definitions. Semi-vegetarian or flexitarian diets are primarily vegetarian, but include a small amount of meat, poultry, fish, and seafood. They might include dairy foods and eggs. This flexible type of eating is a good starting place for individuals looking to incorporate more plant-based meals. Pescatarian diets are also primarily vegetarian, but include shellfish and fish. Lacto-ovo vegetarian diets include eggs and dairy products, but exclude meat, fish, poultry, and any products that contain these foods. Vegan diets are entirely plant-based, excluding all animal-derived products and ingredients, and also some vegans don't eat honey. Animal foods are one of the primary sources of vitamin B12. Therefore, vegans should include B12 fortified foods such as cereals, nutritional yeast, and some plant-based beverages, and take a B12 supplement to ensure adequate intake. Whole food plant-based diets like vegan diets exclude all animal-derived products and ingredients. This diet is centered on whole and minimally refined plant-based foods. Highly refined foods that include bleached flour, refined sugar, and oil are excluded or minimized in this diet. Once upon a time there was an engineer Choo-choo Charlie was his name we hear He had an engine and he sure had fun He's good and plenty candy to make his brain run so if these are the types of diets that will ultimately help save our species and our ability to inhabit this planet, things have to change upstream. And if corporations lack the incentive to change their behaviors today, then there have to be a concerted government effort to raise taxes on intensive animal and fishing operations and to shift subsidies away from these enterprises to local, diverse, and sustainable operations that meet the growing demand for plant-based foods. There are some states in the United States, by the way, that are actively doing this, and it might have to be a state-by-state -state revolution in order to accommodate this, because the federal government probably isn't gonna move quickly enough, but relying on measures like incentives or trade-offs in the way that we've approached failed carbon offsets just won't work. Remember that if Monsanto can afford to foot the bill for 10 billion in cancer-related lawsuits without blinking, these types of incentives or fines just won't get it done. 
Now, the good news for farmers is that there's growing evidence that a return to basic biodiverse and organic practices are actually more profitable than conventional modified monoculture seed farming with pesticides and herbicides. Now, the best example of this is something called the Rodale Trials, which began in earnest in 1981 through the Rodale Institute. Rodale has been running the longest side-by-side -side comparisons of organic and conventional grain cropping systems in North America, and the findings are very encouraging and a little surprising. Quote, the Rodale trials have concluded after decades of comparative research that organic farms are competitive with conventional yields after a five-year transition period and produce yields up to 40% higher in times of drought. Farmers earn three to six times greater profits Organic farms leach no toxic chemicals into the waterways and use 45% less energy and release 40% fewer carbon emissions, end quote. I mean, these are really, really fucking big numbers. This is really important for us to understand. We've gotten so far away from our senses that we can't see this shit clearly. But that transition period, that's the critical part. So resources like Rodale, the Eat Lancet Planetary Diet, the UN Food System Summit, and so many more have carved a very clear outline for what needs to be done, leaving the two missing ingredients of consumer demand and government regulation. Chickens don't have names. How do you know? Madeline, aren't you hungry? I've suddenly lost my appetite. You see, this chicken was a friend of mine. I met him earlier in the car. I think I'm a vegetarian. UNFTR. Chapter 6. Bring it home, Max. According to the OECD estimates, writes Batani, subsidies to agriculture in 53 OECD member countries amounted to $705 billion per year. So this needs to end. This money should be shifted towards regenerative fishing and organic farming programs that can scale. And the reason it needs to happen both immediately and over a sustained period of time is that it takes between three and five years, according to Rodale, to completely convert conventional operations into organic systems before turning a profit. But once these systems convert, as we mentioned earlier, they wind up being far more profitable than the insane fucking systems that we currently maintain. Other policy recommendations from Batani and others she references throughout her collection include limiting the acreage per country or region that can be dedicated to monoculture crops in relation to polyculture or rotating crops, strict limits to the number of livestock per farm and per acre, reducing the barriers and costs to converting to organic agriculture, and labor market measures to promote farming jobs. So it's true that organic farming requires more labor, but in the larger context of employment, that's actually a good thing because it means bringing more jobs back to rural areas that are struggling to convert their economies to match the current economic landscape. Now in the ocean, the policy measures should be similar. Granting large tracts of open ocean to farming seaweed might sound a bit nuts, but Batani estimates that, quote, if less than 10% of the oceans were to be covered in seaweed farms, the farmed seaweed could produce enough biofuel to replace all of today's fossil fuel use while removing 53 billion tons of CO2 per year from the atmosphere, restoring pre-industrial levels, end quote. This is because seaweed is capable of trapping and storing five times the amount of carbon dioxide as trees. 
All told, the IPCC report claims that such policy reforms in flipping the global intake of food from animal to plant-based could reduce emissions by the amount emitted currently by the United States and India each year. So by reducing the amount of food waste, we can eliminate another 8 to 10% of carbon emissions as well. And the procedural changes would effectively halt deforestation and give the earth a fucking break already. As citizens, we can only do so much. Our job is to create demand. Demand more plant-based and organic products. It's the government that has the ability to affect change. After all, our food supply today is exactly the result of government programs and interventions. The chemicals used in industrial agriculture were developed for chemical warfare in World War II. Farm subsidies encouraged farmers to create monoculture. Subsidized crop insurance programs and commodity price supports offset risks in the market and during poor growth seasons. Our trade agreements create advantages for domestic fishing and agriculture producers. This isn't about free markets. As we've proven time and time again, there's nothing free about our market systems and no industry exists outside of the government's purview. It's all about what we have chosen to value, who we choose to elect to leadership and what we demand of them when they're in their jobs. And to bring all of this all the way back around, this starts with getting money out of the system so the corporations that currently run the world no longer have the means and ability to access and influence the political system. The For the People Act in the United States is still the first most important step to making all of this a reality, which is why it's so important for us to connect the dots here together in this show. The bottom line is that capitalism is not built for this type of planning which is why aspects of the economy that align with human imperatives require centralized planning or, at a minimum, strict regulations and incentives to manufacture a positive outcome. The one negative thing I'll say about a vegetable today is that carrots don't work when you need to shift the corporate economy. Fuck the carrot. Use a stick. We need to beat the corporations that control this process into submission and take back control of our food supply and it starts with robbing them of their source of funding and access to control the levers of power and installing progressives in office who believe in science. They understand what's at stake and they're willing to legislatively control the narrative going forward. Because as we demonstrated in our Climate Industrial Complex episode and our shows on corporate propaganda, we've got the money. The military is poised to accept $780 billion to fight imaginary foes around the world when we've seen the enemy, and he is us. These funds need to be reallocated with warlike speed and determination to lead the world into a new, greener, and plant-based era, because if we do this, the rest of the world will follow for now. But again, as we talked about in our China episode, we're going to lose the pole position at some point, and we'll be fighting from behind. Why would we accept defeat when victory for the country, for the species, and the planet is within our grasp. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, many of the plant fuckers listening today are probably familiar with the China study, the seminal book by T. Colin Campbell that linked cancer and other maladies in the Western world to our reliance upon animal proteins. Whether the biological science behind the China study is correct or not, and there's always debate about this, it did cause a shift in the thinking of many Westerners and brought many into the plant-based world. Others, like 99, simply recoil at the horror of industrial animal production. And some just like the way it makes them feel. No vegan diet, no vegan powers! Like I said, no matter your entrance into the world of plant-based diets, 
you're doing more to help the planet than nearly everyone else. That's just a fact. One by one, carrot by carrot, you're actually living the change that we need to see in the world and we need more of you in order to survive. On this, the science is clear. Thank a vegan. Love your mother. Become a plant fucker. Here endeth the lesson. Hey, plant fuckers and everybody else, welcome to Show Notes. Thank you for allowing us the uh, brief respite last week and letting us take some time off. Got recharged. We've been working a while on this episode. Hopefully that shows. Uh, And hopefully we honored all of the people that 99 mentioned up top who have written into us requesting the show. And um, we have some good resources that we want to share. We've got On the Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus. Information on the UN Food System Summit, the UN Food System Statement of Action. Also linked here is the EPA GHG emissions data that we relied on. Penn State's College of Agricultural Science Plant-Based Diet Research. That's actually a pretty good guide for how to begin the process of turning over your diet. The Rodale Trials, which are fascinating. The FAIR Index, which is very cool if you're in the investor community. And the Eat Lancet Commission. In terms of book love, as you heard, we pulled a lot from The Economics of Sustainable Food by Nicoletta Bettini and Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal by Mark Bittman. Both really, really good reads. The Economics of Sustainable Food, uh, I think, is intended strictly for policymakers. It is a very good and comprehensive book that pulls together just, I mean, a shit ton of scientific research. So a lot of validation in that book as well. So I highly recommend it. 99, you put together some pod love. I'll go through the first couple here, but there's a couple that you put on here. We have some podcasts that we want to draw your attention to. The first one is episodes 104 and 105 from Eat the Rich. It's actually a pretty cool show. And they're both about the United Fruit Company. And that's where we drew some of those, uh, some of the inspiration to include that in the episode. And, you know, the show that we like a lot, Outrage and Optimism, actually have a couple of episodes called Setting the Table for a Food Revolution. So check those out as well. And what are the other two that you have in here, 99? Or other four? Yeah, so I added a few. The first one is a show called Our Hen House. And it's just a really good vegan intersectional show. Our Hen House and this next one I'm going to talk about are both really, really interesting because it's not just about veganism. It's about climate justice, access to food, all the things that we talk about, really. So that's our hen house. And then there's one called Total Liberation. They used to be called Vegan Vanguard. And your your guy was on it. Rick Wolf. Yeah, he was on it recently. They talk about a lot more. That episode wasn't about veganism. It was about COVID and capitalism. So I think both of them, uh, maybe a little bit more of the Total Liberation podcast, super aligned for our audience. And then the other two I put on here, one called The Chick Peeps, 
which is a cute name. And it's actually, um, if anyone is a Harry Potter fan, Ivana Lynch, who played Luna Lovegood, she is a really amazing vegan advocate. So she has a podcast and she talks to people who are doing good, innovative things in the vegan world. And then there's another one called Brown Vegan Podcast. And that's another one they talk about intersectionality, all that type of stuff. So I thought especially Brown Vegan Podcast was in important to include here because a lot of criticisms of veganism is that it's overwhelmingly white. But um, there's so many cultures that have been practicing plant-based diets for years before a white guy said, this is veganism and transitioning out of pot love. But um, there are a lot of people who are not anti-veganism, but maybe critics of veganism like to point out that it is often presented in this way, like you have to go vegan or you're bad, you know, period. And that's obviously not the position of this show and not the position of an overwhelming majority of vegans. But I did want to say that there are cultures that veganism is not appropriate for because, you know, animals are part of their culture, their history going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There are people with disabilities who can't be vegan and um, access again. So people who live in food deserts, hopefully that'll change soon. But I just wanted to, to call that to attention that none of this was done under the guise of forcing veganism on people, especially people who physically cannot or do not want to do it culturally. But yeah, that's my little my little piece. Well, I I think you bring up kind of the the central point behind the approach that we took to this episode, which is to kind of stay away from the moral and ethical implications of dietary habits. There are, I don't know, there are probably a hundred different avenues that we could continue to go down. And I do think that we should pursue them to some extent, you know, so long as we're staying in our lane and making the same points. But to what you're saying, we have robbed many indigenous cultures of their right to have these type of lifestyles and live these type of lifestyles. So yes, pescatarian lifestyles and, you know, rice and other plant-based lifestyles, very much a part of most Asian cultures. Historically, our bodies have developed over time to perform well with those type of diets. There's so much research out there. So if you're reading the China study, uh, if you're reading other stuff, maybe you're reading Michael Pollan or you read, I mean, the amount of work and research that's out there on food and the type of food systems that are best for us personally, whether it's through an ethical lens or it's just through a biological lens, there's so much out there and so much to choose from for what works for you. But that's why we wanted to approach this from a justice aspect, an economic aspect, and a planetary aspect, because the overriding factor here is that this process of feeding everybody, the 8 billion and soon to be 10 billion of us, is actually killing us. In the, it will kill us in the long run and is definitely contributing to killing many species off the planet. So again, as I like to say, the planet will be fine. The planet is going to be here. We may not be living on it. We may kill our ability to exist on the planet, but the planet will be here. The earth has all the time in the world. We don't. That's always been sort of that guiding philosophy behind the environmental movement is like, well, why would we do this? Why would we kill ourselves in the process? Well, anything that could be done can be undone. And that's the central point that I want to make here to build on your themes is that if we got here from somewhere that we can still see there are people alive that did not grow up eating the agriculture, the industrial agriculture, revolutionary food, they did not. And so we can get back there again, but it's a matter of policy initiatives and a willingness to do it. 
and consumers, this is one of those times, and you talk about the Tyson principle, this is one of those times where we can actively participate in increasing the demand for these type of products. And that has to come first in order to get corporations to follow suit. So anyway, I, I loved putting this together. Obviously, it took me many more months to put it together than I originally wanted it to because we've been talking about, you know, a vegan episode and a plant-based episode for a long time. But I appreciate you bringing it to me, bringing it to the forefront and coordinating, um, you know, among all of the plant fuckers that are out there that wanted to hear it. And I'm anxious to hear people's feedback. I'm anxious to hear what they have to say about it. So uh, before we get into some shout outs, because we had a very busy couple of weeks, even though we were off on fuckers were very, very busy and very supportive of us. We started something called our 1% initiative, how to take unfucking the republic into the 1%, but not that 1%, not the one you're used to hearing us talk about. The 1% of podcasts. Now, this is a what they would in business school call a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal to get into the top 1% of all podcasts. We'd have to be very special. But here's the weird thing. We're already, surprisingly, in the top 6% based upon our numbers and our downloads. Hmm. So that got us thinking. If we can creep up a percentage point every several months, within a couple of years, get ourselves into the top 1%, I'm pretty confident that the momentum that we could create in terms of shifting narratives in policy initiatives would be substantial. That's the type of power that we are looking for, is the power of good to be able to influence policy. And we'd like to be part of that 1% because our contract with the unfucking community is that we will continue to work our asses off to produce the top quality content. And the best part about it is that because of the native coffee traders partnership that we have, it's just a math game for us. The more listeners we have, the more that purchase our coffee. And it goes to support the reservation and it goes to finance the show, but it doesn't necessarily ask people to do anything extraordinary out of pocket that they wouldn't normally, you know, otherwise buy. There are a lot of people that are coming to us and just taking out straight memberships that have other perks and benefits, and that's awesome. But the numbers game behind getting into the 1% is all about pursuing this coffee partnership and hopefully hooking up with other indigenous entrepreneurs to promote and sell their products through our store as well. So what we're asking for is not money, but support. Get loud, get obnoxious, get out there, be a proud unfucker and spread the word. We're going to start filling up the store with merchandise that you can purchase so you can publicly display things maybe without a curse word on it to help support the show as well. But just telling a friend, sending an email, convincing your friends and family to listen to the show, being active on social media, that's all part of the plan. You can help us get there and we would greatly appreciate it. Our next episode is going to be loosely titled The Libertarian Brain. We're going to get into the mind of libertarians and it's way more interesting than one might think. Certainly more interesting than I initially thought. I used to paint libertarians into a very specific corner, but there are so many subsets of libertarianism that need to be examined. And I think you'll be surprised at who identifies as a libertarian. And lastly, we're also thinking about a new bi-weekly feature coming sometime in February. We might send that out ahead of time on Substack just to kind of get some thoughts about that. Uh, so if you're not part of our uh, subfucker community on Substack, go to unftr.substack.com and sign up to get our emails. It's all the essays behind it and some of the inside thoughts of the show. It's free. It's always going to be free. Remember, our goal is to always produce free content for everybody that's out there. And uh, with that, we get to some donation love. I'm just going to read through this kind of quickly, and I don't mean to gloss over it, but 
99 and I kept checking in with one another. And you might notice, by the way, with different audio quality, this is the first time 99 and I have not been together in the studio. We are out of an abundance of caution separate today. So 99 is in her her bat cave in an undisclosed location somewhere in New York City that I can't reveal. And I'm in our original bat cave somewhere just outside of New York City. But we're looking at each other and, and that's just got to substitute. So we're going to ping back and forth as best we can possibly do right now. And I'm just going to go through a number of these um, these new buymeacoffee.com memberships because we had a lot of them. So 99 and I were touching base over the holiday and just being like, can you fucking believe what's going on? There's so many people coming in to support us, which, I don't know, it just made us feel pretty fucking amazing while we took a little break and took a little breather and spent a lot of time with family and just kind of unplugging for a bit to log on email every morning and see, oh, new member and new member. Really humbling. So thank you to Dominic, who is now a member, Candace OB, Ann G, Ginger K, Hubslist.org, Medical Fun Facts Every Two Weeks, is now a member. I think I know who that is. Uh, no, I know who that is. And it's very cool that he did that. Tristan E. is now a member. From your mate in California and a longtime unfucker. Thank you, Tristan E. Tina G. is also now a member. Ja, or Ga, or G-A, is also now a member. Kevin and Muppet and the Manflesh. That rounds out our new memberships. In addition, Derek R., Jack in Patagonia, someone, Mike G, someone else, Nathan S, who we talked a lot about in the last show before break, Danielle M, John D, and Louis G bought a lot of coffee. I mean, tons of coffee, just pure end of the year, sending love our way. We are eternally grateful for this type of support and love. Appreciate you all. Uh, 99, over there in your back cave. Can you uh, go through some of the social posts here? Yeah. So on Facebook, <laughs> Ryan T said, I'm having trouble getting my smart speaker to play you an FTR. Do you have any suggestions on how to ask? No, we don't. So I figured if anyone knows, write in. Uh, Ryan T has an Alexa, but I'm sure a Google Home or whatever the other government installed listening devices, they also could use the help. So we're sorry, Ryan T. Hopefully someone knows. Whiskey Daisy said, New Year's resolution, share your podcast on Facebook when I listen on Tuesday mornings. And they're not a fan of how bottle fucker sounds, but they get it, which is what <laughs> I told you. People, I guess, the implication being. Yeah, no, I know. It's not great. But, you know, I mean, pack fucker, uh, pitch fucker, none of these are really flattering, but they, but they were designed with love. Yes. And then Dennessee. Knudsen. Did I do a good job? Great job. Nettie, Carol H., and Eric B. all shared the pot out to their friends on Facebook. I realized that so many people have been sharing our posts at, like to their own pages and commenting on it, but not like commenting on our actual posts, and I've been missing all of that. So to anyone who's been sharing their posts on their feed this whole time and I haven't seen you, I'm sorry, and thank you. So then on Twitter, our friend Eating Waste said, my top pod discovery of 2021 was UNFTR pod. A molecular dissection of things falling apart down there and why that matters for everybody and what we can do about it. Think eating waste might be Canadian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, down there. Mm -hmm. um, then at Meryl6487625 said, excellent informative podcast if you overlook the colorful language. I look forward to the weekly show. At board underscore Claude said, come along for good on fucking. Join us. <laughs> At Cody Derbar Barbar Barbar like the Barbar Babar like Bar -bar. the elephant. Do you remember him? I sure do. 
Okay, maybe this is Babar or Babar. Looks like Barbie. Okay. Cody Babar, the elephant, said, love these unfuckers. And then Esoke shared a photo of their unfucking coffee hall and said, this might be the best Christmas present ever. Oh, Merry Christmas, Esoke. And then lastly on Instagram, a bunch of unfuckers have been tagging us in their Insta stories. So please keep it up and I do my best to repost them whenever I see them. Very nice. Well, we got some feedback as well. Nathan S. reached out to us after we uh, dedicated a lot of time in show notes last time to reviewing his letter. He said he listened to the podcast twice this week. Pleasantly surprised we devoted so much time towards the letter and thanked us deeply for that. Uh, and you are welcome because, again, thank you for sending in such inspiring uh, feedback and questions. And Barbie, speaking of Barbie, said, I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate uh, having you to read and listen to this past year. Uh, 99 is obviously super at what she does. And Manny, well... Manny is just so cool. Bobby McDee from Ireland. I want to say you guys have made such a wonderful contribution to my year. Thank you not just for the book, but for being something I look forward to every week. Your wisdom and insight wrapped in good fun is such a treat. How'd I do, Bobby McDee? I've been working on it. He's going to hate He's going to hate gonna that. He's going to hate it, right? I know, but I've been working on it. I really have. And I'm going to get blamed. I'm the one who I was told to rein you in. But I can't. I, I'm not even near him. I couldn't even knock the mic out of. I know, I know, but I, uh, I'm working on it. I want to honor it. It's a little better, right? It's not so leprechaun-y. Uh, it it's very leprechaun. It's very sing-songy, but it's a very sing-songy, you no know, accent. You sound like the Lucky Charms guy. L- Lucky, I think that's his name. Paul C. In your latest episode, you mentioned in the coming year you'd be covering many topics, and among them is veganism. Since I have some familiarity with the topic, I've decided to provide my insights for what they are worth. Now, I wanted to make special note of this because it's great timing, obviously. Paul C. wrote in with uh, some things about plant-based diet being good for uh, Alzheimer's. He has somebody in his life suffering from Alzheimer's, and for that, I am very, very sorry. That is a brutal, brutal disease. My heart goes out to you. Among other things, though, he also references the China study by T. Colin Campbell, as we did during the show. And a few other things related to obesity, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, arthritis, even cataracts. So to you, Paul, and to everybody else who has written in all of the plant fuckers that have written in over the past several months, hopefully we did touch on a lot of the underlying issues related to a plant-based diet, even though we didn't go too far into any of the health issues. Like 99 said up top, it's all part of the subtext of this. There are so many more positive tributaries that come from completely reversing and re-engineering our food supply system, not the least of which is reducing these type of catastrophic diseases and uh, health issues that people have. So, Paul, thank you for writing in. Just to jump on that really quickly, there are so many great documentaries out there that we didn't include in our research because this wasn't really a health-focused episode, but if you're interested in learning about the health benefits, Forks Over Knives is probably, if you ask a vegan... A huge entry point for them. Um, there was a pretty recent one on Netflix called Game Changers. That one was really great. It came from kind of an athletic perspective. So there's there's so many great resources documentary-wise. And also another part of this that we didn't really address, obviously, because it wasn't about the food that we eat, not the production. But a lot of people are like, well, it's so limiting being a vegan. You're cutting out everything. But a lot of people say going vegan has help them eat way more, you know, and try new things that they never would have before. So I'm also going to drop a bunch of links and show notes to some uh, mainly Instagram, you know, vegan, not influencers necessarily, but people who are documenting what they eat, how to make stuff, simple entry points, and I think are really helpful. So another small vegan diet tribe, but 
I just want to make sure that if this interested you, there's plenty of resources for you to grab from. Awesome. And we'll have those on uh, not just show notes, but in Substack as well. Right? Yep. Okay. Awesome. Sorry. I didn't know if that was rhetorical. <laughs> no, sorry. It was a question. <laughs> Uh, before we go, we had a couple of reviews. Scuba for RX said, really one of the best podcasts I ever listened to, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. NYT Review. <laughs> that would be great, right? If the New York Times was like, I'm I'm going to review this podcast. Uh, we might even succeed if enough people listen to this podcast. Charming, rageful, and so witty funny. Ooh, thank you, NYT Review. Uh, and WTF Tan MN said... Every episode makes me angry because of the utter psychopathy of those in control and the injustice handed down to the lowly masses. Max's great at impressions. Well, thank you. Love the Matt Gates butthead, so do I. And I usually don't drink coffee, but I took a chance and absolutely love the coffee that they feature for purchase. Uh, so great job by all. Thank you for that. And um, wah, 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 our last review. Can I read it? Yeah, it's a, you read it, and but don't read the handle. And then I'll read the handle and why it okay. all makes sense. Okay, so we got this review. So it says, Unfortunately, this podcast is an example of another unreasonable, self-hating leftist that disdains his own culture and country. I listened for an hour, and I was hoping to hear anything that resembled a coherent argument for at least one of his positions, but to no avail. My biggest regret is that one hour of my life that I will never get back. I firmly believe that I could make a reasonable case that the host owes all of his money for walking away from his show a little dumber after listening to it. For the love of God, move on and don't waste your time like I did. Good luck. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. In a whole hour, it the only thing I wonder is which hour? I know. That's what I was like. Tell us which episode. Maybe it was yeah. a really shitty episode. Maybe he's yeah, right. Such a shame. And, uh, you know, for what it's worth, not saying, <laughs> you know, it has any impact on it whatsoever this could be a very genuine sentiment from somebody uh but this person's handle is maga america first make america great again america first yeah so um i'm surprised i'm surprised anyway this person is very clearly ripping off billy madison you know the How? scene in the hour the academic decathlon and he oh. He says, like, we are all dumber for having listened to that. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. In fairness, I think I've done that a couple of times, actually, over the last year, too. Uh, and now we're all dumber. But that's. But yeah, I mean, listen, if well, I like you and I don't like this person, so it's OK when you do it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, listen, as always, Unfucky the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response, were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99, for whom this episode truly is for and dedicated to, and uh, the person that has my eternal gratitude. Doyle rules. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Tofurky and distributed by Honeybees. Send us your comments and your questions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social everywhere at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop and read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com because it will always, always be free. 
Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, we'll see you next week when we're talking about the libertarian mind. I don't have anything. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Semi-vegetarian or flexitarian diets are primarily vegetarian. 99 is opening her shades. Thing in the light. See the light. Go to the light. Wait, should I tell people that, that B12 supplements make your pee neon yellow? Hey, sugar tits, I came here to ask you to bomb Israel. Perfect. I can't say any of the other things that he says, though. Fucking guy. But Jen Pisaki just killed him, so we're good. Pisaki. Oh,